Hey there, and welcome to Hormonally Speaking. I'm your host, Christine Garvin, a functional health coach. Each week, I speak with an incredible guest expert on all things women's hormones. We're here to empower you to take back control of your body, health, and well-being, and to learn about the latest in research and solutions when it comes to getting your hormones happy. No part of this podcast should be construed as medical advice, and we always recommend working with a professional practitioner to figure out what's best for your body. Now let's dive in with today's guest. Hey guys, welcome to today's episode. I am really, really excited today to have someone on the show that is going to talk about something that I haven't really talked about on the show at all. Maybe, um, you know, a couple of people have mentioned it in terms of interviews, but it's such an insidious thing that I feel like so many people don't know about. I've really been wanting to have an expert on the show to talk about how it impacts health on the whole and then how it impacts our hormones. And the thing that I'm talking about is mold. So, you know, I'm fascinated by mold because it is um, such an underlying condition for so many people with striking illnesses these days. And yet, you know, like mold has been something that's around for all of time. And, you know, so I often wonder why is it so much, you know, worse now? Um, but we're really seeing so many different things happening, right, with our environment and our bodies. And so I'm excited to dive in with Ellen Lovelace today, who, before I get into her bio, she's actually one of the instructors in the programs that I have done, the trainings that I've done with Restorative Wellness Solutions, and she's amazing at that. And so um, I'm excited to get her on here talking about something that I don't know enough about, which is the mold. So Ellen has been actively working to educate and improve the public's health for almost 20 years. Ellen received her master's in public health from the George Washington University and went on to run everything from tuberculosis prevention programs in Russia to dental health education programs along the Texas-Mexico border. She was also the funding executive director of the Women's Health Program at Stanford University. When Ellen became drawn to a more holistic model, she received her certifications as a nutritional therapy consultant and a master restorative wellness practitioner. She's also board certified in holistic nutrition. She's the owner of a balanced table nutritional therapy in San Jose, California, her private functional nutrition practice. Ellen focuses on cutting through the confusion and nutrition noise, digging into the roots of clients' dysfunction and figuring out the best way for them to eat, drink and thrive. A mold survivor herself, her practice focuses on many complex and chronic health conditions, including mold toxicity and autoimmunity. In her other life, Ellen is a passionate animal lover who volunteers at a wildlife rescue facility and can also be found smelling of skunk while covered in mastiff drool. Welcome, Ellen. I love that, <laughs> that ending note. That's perfect. That shows you're real. <laughs> for sure there's probably some on my pants right now if you look closely <laughs> so you know as you mentioned in your bio you yourself have dealt with mold toxicity so let's start off with explaining exactly what mold toxicity is for people who don't know and I think a lot of people don't even realize like mold can get in our bodies and set up shop so if you could tell us a little bit about that that'd be great yeah, absolutely. Let's understand what we're dealing with and how it gets there before we know what we talk about what it can do to us for sure. So, you know, mold is a fungus that we're all very familiar with fungus and there's probably about 2 million identified species of fungus. Um, of those, there's about 300 that are known to be pathogenic or dangerous to humans. And then from those molds, there are about a thousand different mycotoxins, which are actually the poisons that mold emit. And I can talk more about that um, mm -hmm. in just a moment. The main way that we're exposed to mold and their mycotoxins, by far the number one source of exposure uh, is water damaged buildings. And there's a lot of studies out there that show that this problem is much bigger than we really think it is. Um, there's one study that says about 43% of buildings that have been looked at have current water damage and 85% have past water damage. Uh, and another one estimates that about 50% of homes and 80% of public buildings, so things like schools and hospitals, have water damage in them as well. And the thing that, that people don't realize, even a lot of uh, even mold remediation experts don't realize is that mold can start to grow within 48 hours of a water event. Wow. So, you know, the problem is, is fast on onset and then it persists. So for months after there's been a water damage event, molds and mycotoxins remain measurable in the space. So 
having visible water damage, you know, an active wet leak is not required. In mm -hmm. fact, once the molds dry out, they start dispersing spores, um, the, which is the way that they kind of, you know, send out little babies to go make more mold in the world, essentially. Yay! Uh, exactly, exactly. And that happens more readily when they're dry. So if you think about like, you have a pipe break under your bathroom sink and you shut off the water and you, you know, you clean up the mess and, and it seems like everything's resolved. Um, the, the thing is the wallboard behind your sink where your pipes come out got wet and that's probably going to take a couple days to dry out. And so mold starts to grow back there and then it does dry. But every time you open those cabinet doors, you're creating a little wind that's sucking those spores and the mycotoxins that the mold creates as well out into your air where it can potentially affect you. Um, and like, and yeah, I can't imagine a house that that doesn't happen to at some no, point. No, you ask anybody, has your bathtub ever overflowed? Has yeah. your hot water leader here ever brought, you know, everybody's had that happen in a home, let alone in a school or a hospital that has a flat roof where, where the problem is usually generally much, much worse. So the mycotoxins, what they are is essentially uh, the mold's defense system. So it, it's a living creature, like everything on the planet, it wants to, to thrive. And so it releases these mycotoxins, which are really just poisons that are meant to kill off other molds and bacteria that might be competing for the same space with those mycotoxins, uh, with those molds, sorry. So there's a really good example of this that everyone is familiar with, whether you realize it or not, which is penicillin. So we all know that, you know, most people have heard the story that penicillin was, was discovered by um, making an extract from moldy bread. Mm -hmm. That was the penicillium mold that was growing on that bread. And that mold was creating mycotoxins, which were meant to kill off bacteria that might've been trying to kill that mold. We were able to harness those and turn them into penicillin. So uh, in that example, we used mycotoxins for good, but generally speaking, <laughs> mycotoxins are, are not used for good. They're used for evil in, in the human body, unfortunately. Hmm. So do you think that it's gotten so much worse, like over time in terms of impacting people's health, a, because it's going to happen in most people's houses at some point. And like, I, like I live in Asheville, which is called like a temperate rainforest. Mm -hmm. And so we got mold, like I, you know, I feel like there's no way around it, but mm -hmm. like, I think about people living throughout history and it seems like such a worse issue now. And is it because we're inside all the time or like all this other stuff that we're, our bodies are contending with? Do you think? I think working? that is a great question. And I think it's a really complex soup of answers, basically, you know, um, some of it, yes, mold has been around obviously all throughout history and just about everything that we know about mold and preventing mold illness, uh, comes from the livestock industry because they are so focused on not getting mold in their feed because that can potentially right. kill their animals. So right, right. most of the studies were actually done on that. But I mean, there are examples, you know, I think even going back, if you look at literature, so they talk about biblical times, stories about, you know, different uh, types of plagues and diseases and things like that, that they really think when they look at it, it was probably mold related, you know? So it, it's always been there. Yeah. The, the problem is we have started building our buildings to feed it. Mm. If you look at a, a building that was built in the 1300s in France, uh, it's made of stone and plaster yeah. uh, and tile probably. There's nothing there to feed mold. Gotcha. Um, but a modern house is made of wood and paper, uh, you know, wallboard <laughs> and, and wood. And there is nothing that mold wants to eat more than wet wallboard. You know, yeah. that is, is really the, the number one food for it in our current environment. And then people got smart and thought, oh, well, we're going to start impregnating the wallboard with fungicide so that the mold can't grow. Well, everybody knows about antibiotic resistance, right? The, you know, the more antibiotics you taste, the stronger the bugs get. And that's become the same thing with the molds. They're learning how to overcome these fungicides. So I think there's all that environmental stuff. Uh, and then there's the fact that we know people are just generally sicker, right? I mean, you can just make that as a blanket statement. We're all more toxic, more polluted, more stressed, more everything. Our immune systems are already probably not doing great. We're eating the standard American diet of crap and drinking a lot of alcohol and, and doing all of that. And so you've got a system that's primed to be taken down by some sort of a toxin coming along um, that, that you know, maybe a hundred years ago would not have been nearly as, as problematic for you. I think the other really important thing to realize about people who are made sick by mold is that for most people, 
it's their genes that have actually laid the ground for them to be made really sick by this toxin. Um, so there's people who are really kind of exquisitely sensitive to this. We call them mold canaries, you know, like the canary in the coal mine, basically. Yeah. Uh, and, and these people are so highly sensitive that they just cannot detoxify mold toxins and probably many other types of toxins as well. And it's what can make this work so confusing because you'll have a whole family living in the same house and you've got one or maybe two people who are sick and, and maybe their symptoms are completely different from each other. And then you've got the rest of the family who's fine and thinks that they're crazy. There's no way it's the house that's making them sick. And it can just be because their genes are making them really susceptible for it. Um, I, I read somewhere that it's like 25% of people have that kind of intense reaction to mycotoxins. Is that kind of the group of people that you're talking about? That Yeah. So again, there are different kind of numbers on this and it's, it gets really complicated when you start to talk about what's kind of like the genetic profile of the person who is susceptible to this, because this isn't right. something where you can like look on 23andMe and figure out, do I have the mold gene or not? It, it, it's very different than all of that. But, but yeah, there's about 25% of people who we think are in some way genetically compromised and are more likely to be made sick by mold toxins. And then of that 25%, there's a much smaller subset that are the ones who will just be taken out by mold. And, mm -hmm. and that's probably... Mm -hmm. 3% of people. Uh, for a long time, it was called the dreaded genes. Most people have tried to move away from that because it's not something you really want to tell someone like you, you have the dreaded genes. But by the way, I have the dreaded genes, it turns out. So yeah, it's, it's probably about 3% of people who are just the really true mold canaries. And what is that gene or how do you, is that something you can on the... Yeah. So it's not one specific gene. It's called your HLA genotype. And it's you know, rather than thinking about a gene as, as if like a gene is a word in a sentence, your HLA genotype is like a whole sentence of genes. Um, and so there's some pretty complicated testing that you have to do to figure out exactly which type of gene you have. And the question also is, is it even worth figuring that out? I mean, it's kind of cool to know that I have the dreaded gene, but it doesn't change how sick I was and it doesn't change the work you have to do to get better, right? So, um, you know, I don't, I don't usually test that gene on people just because it's like, save your money. There's plenty of other things that we could be testing right. that'll make Got lots of other tests for you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. So can you tell us a little bit about your story and like how you figured it out and you know, what that path was like for you? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, it's a long path, uh, as unfortunately it is for most people who are, are being made sick by mold. Uh, for me, it goes back over 10 years ago. Uh, and all of my symptoms primarily were digestive. The, the, the easiest way to describe it is I was just nauseated 24 seven. It didn't matter what I ate. If I didn't eat, um, I had a variety of different food sensitivity tests done. You know, obviously Western medicine couldn't figure anything out. There was, you know, quote, nothing wrong when you ran all the tests uh, and the naturopaths, uh, food sensitivity testing, we figured out, okay, I needed to get off dairy and a few other things. And that would help for a while, but, but it always came back. Uh, when my nausea was at its worst, I would also have a vertigo with it. So it was like bed spins. You know, you, you drank too much and you lay down and the room was actually spinning. That's what I would feel like when I would lie down, but I hadn't had anything to drink. Um, I went to a functional neurologists, you know, I mean, yeah, we figured out, okay, there was some stuff with my eyes and my cerebellum, but we were never getting to the root. My symptoms were always much worse with my period. So we looked at all of my hormones. They were mostly just terrible. My hormones were in the toilet and I'm, I'm 50 and I'm still a cycling woman, but I've always had hormones that were so low that it's kind of amazing that I am still a cycling woman. But, but I don't have, you know, a ton of symptoms from that. So it's like, we kept figuring out little things. I figured out I had chronic Epstein-Barr. Okay, that could explain some of the fatigue and the swollen glands and things like that. But I was just never able to, to, to chip away at it enough to really make a difference in my symptoms. Um, and, you know, I mean, I probably worked with eight different providers of all different types, not, not medical for the most part, but from, you know, naturopaths to functional nutritionists to functional neurologists, you know, chiropractors, kind of everything and had little, little successes here and there, but, um, never, never really got anywhere. Oh, and also along the way discovered that I had autoimmunity now to the cells in my stomach. So could explain why I was nauseated and couldn't digest food all the time by, by having autoimmunity to these parietal cells, but still 
the question is why, you know, what caused this immune freak out? So, uh, you know, this was many years of not really figuring it out. And then in late 2018, uh, I found a, a new practitioner, uh, an integrative doctor who's actually sort of one of the real leaders in this field. And I was very lucky to get to be her patient. Mm. And she looked at my history and, and she said, the thing that I now know from working with, with mold clients and seeing this over and over again, you're missing something, right? When you've run all the tests and taken all the pills and changed your diet and gotten rid of your stress and you're sleeping, you know, and you're doing all the things and you're still not getting somewhere, you're missing something. And so often that can be environmental toxicity. You know, as a practitioner, I was always like, mold, those people are so sick. Like, I don't, I don't want to learn about this. I don't want to work with it. I don't, you know, we're just, I'm going to leave that to somebody else. And then, you know, the universe. Here you are. <laughs> That's what, no, you're, you're going to get to learn a whole lot about that. So she tested me for mold. She tested my body for mold and it showed up, um, which we can talk about. There's a lot of problems with that type of testing as well, but it did show up. And then it was like, okay, well now we have to find it because the number one rule of healing from being poisoned is you got to get away from the poison. Yeah. So you have to know where it is. Yeah. Uh, and because I work from home and have for years, it seemed most likely that it was in my house. But, um, you know, like you said in my intro, I live in hot, sunny San Jose, California. It's not humid here at all. Um, we have never had any water intrusion events in our house that I've lived in for 20 years that, that, you know, I mean, like my bathtub overflowed one time 11 years ago, but otherwise nothing, literally nothing. Um, and, and we just thought there's no way, there's no way that this can be mold. Uh, and we got a very highly trained mold inspector out and we can talk about that too, because there's a lot of pitfalls around that. Um, and, and it was, it was everywhere. Um, it was oh my goodness. under our roof, um, like, uh, between the roof and the attic decking. Um, it was throughout our whole HVAC system. And that's which is pumping it out everywhere, right? That's like, you know, cancer in your blood, right? It's just, it's just going to go everywhere throughout the whole, the whole house. So, uh, yeah, you know, we, we found it and we, we got out, um, where I live, uh, is, is now one of the most expensive places to live in the country. It was not when we bought our house 22 years ago. So, um, it still made sense to put a whole bunch of money into doing a massive renovation of this house because, the value of the house has come up so much basically that it was right. worth it to do it. But for somebody else in some other part of the country, you know, the answer might've just been leave, you know, yeah. just, get it you know yeah. light a match if you have to, not that I'm encouraging insurance fraud or anything, but you know, just, just get out. We got out, we moved into a rental and we, we completely gutted my house. I mean, we took it to the studs. It has, it has a new roof, new HVAC, new plumbing, new electrical, new everything basically started over. Wow. Um, and, and, Within days of moving out, I was 75% better. Wow. I mean, it was that, it was that simple. It was like you said, it was just being blown around the house everywhere. And this was the middle of winter when we figured it out, which it's not that bad in California, but we did still have the heat on, you know, it's in the fifties here during the day. Uh, and so it was just being pumped everywhere basically. Um, and then I embarked on a very long mold healing protocol that still is happening at, at some much reduced level at this point, basically. Uh, and I think there will be parts of my health that may never fully recover. You know, I may not be able to get rid of the autoimmune attack on my stomach. That may never yeah. go away. And, um, and do you pretty much think that the autoimmune happened because of the mold? I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, mold does Oh my gosh, it does so, so many things in your body. And, and, you know, we should totally talk about this, but it, it, one of the big things that it does is it causes massive immune dysregulation. Mm -hmm. And so that can be that it causes massive immune suppression, right? right? So that you're, you're really susceptible to all sorts of things. You know, I've probably had, I had mono in 11th grade. So I've had Epstein-Barr in my body since I was 16 years old. Right. right. And by being so immunosuppressed from this mold, it was able to, to come back and become problematic again, become a reactivated infection. Not only can it suppress your immune system, but it can cause you know, massive upregulation of the undesirable parts of your immune system, which is what then starts to create autoimmunity. So for me, it was to my stomach, which is probably why I was nauseated all the time, but it could be autoimmunity to anything. You know, it could yeah. be to your nerves, your thyroid, your joints, your brain. It, it could develop to just about any tissue really. Uh, so was the mold, did you know where in your body? Like, is that something they can determine? Like, was it in no, your and I don't think yeah, that's a good question. I don't think for the most part that matters. I mean, mm -hmm. 
the mycotoxins are so incredibly small. Think about them like a poisonous gas, because that's really how small they are. You can have mold behind your wall, like a leaking pipe behind your wall. There's mold growing back there. You never see it. You don't know it's there. The mycotoxins can come through your wall board and you can inhale them, right? So they're, it's, it really is like a gas. They're so small that they get all the way through your lung to your alveoli, get out into your circulation. And then they're what's called lipophilic toxins, which means mm, fat loving. Yeah, yeah. So they can cross the, the lipid membrane of every cell in your body. So they can go into every cell in your brain. (laughs) Yeah. They can go into your brain. They kill the cells. They shut down your mitochondria. So you have no, no cellular energy. I mean, it's, it's pretty much, they can affect just about everything. We call mold the great imitator because you name something and we can pretty much explain how it could be caused by, by mold toxicity illness. The one place in the body, well, really two places in the body that they can't, it can actually colonize. In addition to the mycotoxins, you can be physically colonized by mold. Um, certainly it can colonize your intestines, right? We think about that all the time. We look for candida infections on, on gut testing and things like that. Um, it can colonize the lung as you're inhaling mold spores. You can actually get a fungal infection in the lung, which is one of the only kind of medically accepted forms of mold sickness is actually being colonized by mold, which in the lung, that's pretty, that's pretty rare. You're not going to see that super often. The one thing you do see a lot is actually colonizing the sinuses. Oh, that makes sense. Cause we're breathing this stuff in and yeah, the mycotoxins go on and do their deadly work, but you get the, the actual spores in your, your sinuses and it can really colonize. Uh, you get, you see a lot of people with sinus problems, asthma, respiratory, all that sort of stuff with mold. And then you've got mold sitting in your sinuses, pumping out mycotoxins, which are going right up the olfactory nerve into your brain. That olfactory bulb sits right next to your, um, hypothalamus pituitary. And now ask me why you have hormonal dysregulation, right? Right. Nothing works anymore when everything is being so inflamed by having these poisons coming essentially directly in. Right. Right. And I have a friend and client who has Ehlers-Danos, however you say it. Yeah. The dystonomia that is, goes along Mm -hmm. with that. And I know it's been coming out that in a lot of cases, mold underlies that, right? Yeah. It's like, yeah, there's a lot of thinking with that Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which has always been thought to just be like a connective disease, Mm -hmm. connective tissue disease. People are like super flexible and their skin is kind of stretchy and, um, it's not, it's not a fun condition. There's a lot of like blood clotting stuff that goes on with it and all that. Uh, and yeah, there, there are a lot of people saying now that when you, when you have an Ehlers-Danlos, um, diagnosis, which is not a super common diagnosis, you need to be looking for mold. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just crazy because it really does feel like mold underlies so many people's issues and they don't know it, right? Because this information isn't out there in a big enough way yet. I mean, I know in the functional world, it's definitely being talked about more and more, but I think a lot of times people don't know what to do, A, like who to work with to figure it out. And then like, yeah, can you tell us some of the process of what you've been doing to get rid of the mold? And I know it's probably depends on yeah. the situation and the person. Yeah. But Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's so bio-individual, this work. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, what, what's important to know, as you, as you know, if you've talked to anyone who has mold toxicity or if anyone listening is experiencing mold toxicity, um, you're real sick <laughs> and real depleted. And um, everybody has a different cluster of kind of things that they experience. But, you know, I will say that, kind of the big ones that we see over and over, this will help you just kind of understand how depleted these, these folks are to begin with before you can even begin to do something about it. Mm-hmm. You know, not only do you see the respiratory issues and the gut issues and the autoimmunity, those come up a lot. Um, we see a lot of chronic kidney and bladder issues. Many of these mycotoxins are actually really, um, um, they love the kidneys and they, they end up setting up shop and doing a lot of damage in that area. Mm-hmm. Over and over, there's kind of just this general cluster of symptoms. People are real tired. They usually have um, both exercise and heat intolerance, which is mm-hmm. like your antenna should go up when you hear that. Like when people feel much worse when it gets hot out mm-hmm. uh, and if they exercise, th- that's kind of a big one. There's usually some level of dizziness, headaches, so many cognition issues, memory, decision-making problems, extreme brain fog, um, a lot of mood, anxiety, depression that goes along with it. Mm-hmm. severe sleep disturbances. I'd say most of my mold people just can't sleep. 
just can't, it doesn't matter what you do, just can't sleep, which of course is going to make everything worse yeah. at that point, right? Uh-huh. Um, skin things, you get a lot of rashes that go along with this. Mm-hmm. And then I think one of the other really big ones is this kind of an inner unsettled feeling. There's a lot of limbic system involvement with mold. So people are in fight or flight mode all the time. They can't relax. They can't digest. They can't heal. And they just feel really on edge and uneasy about the world all the time. Mm-hmm. So from a from a, a support standpoint, what do you do for somebody once you've identified that this is the problem? That's a whole long list of things that you have to try to deal with, right? In addition to, they probably have some other, you know, symptom-specific things. So maybe they have, um, you know, di- massive digestive problems or um, really bad joint pain or massive hormonal dysregulation. Maybe their thyroid's in the toilet, you know. Yeah, you have to sort of be dealing with all of the leaves on the tree while you're also dealing with the roots of the tree. And so sometimes this work for a long time is, first of all, get away, get out, take very little with you, get away from the poison. And that in and of itself is a massive undertaking. Huge, yeah. And never fun to have to tell somebody, hey, you got to get out of your house, right? That's, that's, that's huge. Then just clean living clean air, clean water, clean food, clean personal care products. You know, that's, you got to lower their toxic burden, right? So that, that's really huge. Then so much of the work is very frequently just building them up, right? You got to get them, you got to get them sleeping. You got to get them strong. You got to get their, their mitochondria making energy again. You have to get them back to being a stable, functional human before you can even begin to think about how do we get the mold out of your body? And let me tell you, if you do this in the wrong order, right? Or too aggressively, or you know, really diving into parts of this work that the that the person's not ready for, you can make somebody so sick and create such an inflammatory cascade that it's like months of trying to get them back from that before you can go back to starting to try again, basically. So it's definitely not a one size fits all. These are not like three month protocols. Use these six things and everything will be great. You know, that's, that's right. that this is, this work is a long slogging marathon for sure. And I'm glad that you brought up about the building up before you kind of eradicate or move out, you know, because I think that that's something that a, a lot of people don't realize. And I even like, you know, this friend went to a doctor that they kind of went right into the eradication aspect, you know, and I mean, kind of slow ish, but still I was like, she's, she, you know, is that person that struggles and she goes to the ER once a month because of, you know, low um, blood pressure and, you know, just electrolyte imbalance like crazy. And I was like, you, there's definitely some building that needs to happen here, but to make you strong enough to be able to do that. Right. Because you're, it over can overwhelm your system you know the drainage pathways aren't open and I think absolutely people don't yeah. like yeah don't realize that and and I mean it's funny as you're talking because I'm like ah the mold that I was in my senior year of college like how much is that still impacting me but that is actually a really great question to bring up Christine because it it does not necessarily the house you live in right now right? You know, particularly if you're one of these mold canaries, if you're somebody who genetically can't clear this stuff out, it could be your college dorm, mm-hmm. right? It could be the house you grew up in that had fuzzy black walls in the crawl space. You know, it, it really, those, they are persisting in every cell of your body. They're hanging out in the little fatty membranes, just having a party, shutting down your mitochondria and doing all sorts of other awful things. Um, so yeah, it's not necessarily this house. And as a practitioner, one of the most important things for figuring out, are you dealing with a mold problem is taking an incredible case history because like you said, I mean, everyone's had a leak in their house or something, but it's not until you really start to probe that, you know, I had a client who said, oh, well, I remember when I was in college, the dorm room, two doors down for me, they had to move the girls out because the mold problem was so bad while they remediated it. I was two doors down from her. You know, yeah. you think she didn't have mold too? Of course right, she did. Right, her dorm right. Room, right. So yeah, it's, it's not necessarily the place you are right now. It also could be your workplace and boy, does that get complicated, right? If you oh, work out absolutely. Mold, that's where the mold is. That's really complicated. True. I mean, I guess at least with COVID in a lot of cases, it's easier for people to not work at their place of business, but that's not option for everybody for sure. That's true. And a lot of people are developing more and more mold toxicity illness in the last year because they are in their house all the time. Right. So if the mold in their house and they got to leave for 10 hours every day, now they don't leave. Uh, and so a lot of people got worse. 
Yeah. So how long do you feel it took you before you started feeling better or was it just so like incrementally, you know, so just give people a, a yeah. Idea. I mean, I would say that that first increment was fast and big, you know, okay. when you move easily down. 75% better, like the vertigo stopped, the weird skin rashes stopped, the memory uh, issues and brain fog gone, the swollen glands gone. I mean, that was all as soon as I got out of my house, basically. Um, the things that I've continued to work on over the last few years have been digestive. Um, I, I just don't think my stomach, at least not yet, is ready to perform the way it's supposed to. Uh, and so, you know, I still have to work on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the hormonal stuff, I think, is, is stuff I am still still tweaking. But also, I am 50, so things are going to be changing potentially in the next few years. So yeah. there, that'll yeah, probably be- have no control over that part. Yeah, exactly. So that will be an iterative process of tweaking that, I would say. But, uh, you know, and in the, in the, the mole clients that I work with, I would say it's the same sort of thing. You know, we, we chip away at it and we get little successes here and there as we are getting them out of the house and, you know, getting their environment cleaned up and all of that. And then it starts happening pretty quickly. It's not like any healing process. It's not this, right? It's not just a constant uphill. There's a lot of this that goes on for sure. Um, There's there's always somewhere along the way, usually a re-exposure that happens. Um, you become more sensitized to this once you get out of it. Right. Uh, and so then you go to a hotel room or something and, you know, it all kind of comes back, but you will recover from that a little more quickly. Like it gets you get faster and faster at bouncing back from it, but that does happen too. So it is something that people kind of have to just be aware of for probably the rest of their life once they've had. Yeah. I mean, I have always wanted to live by the ocean. Like I have just always thought hundred percent, I will live by the ocean. Uh, I'm in California, but I'm a good, you know, 40 miles from the ocean here, basically. And I, I just have to accept the fact, and my husband is from the South, right? And I just have to accept that I, I'm not going to be able to live in either of those two places. Yeah. Like I, I'm not retiring to Florida. That there's, 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 just, there's no way, you know, or Hawaii or, or whatever. And so um, not that you can't have mold in the desert. Uh, you know, houses that are, are poorly constructed in terms of uh, HVAC systems and plumbing, some of the worst mold problems can be, you know, people in Arizona, um, where it's, again, behind the walls and you just don't even know it's happening, uh, particularly when they, when they try to cool those houses down really quickly uh, and you get a lot of condensation in the system. So don't think that, you know, because you live in Phoenix, you can't have mold. That issue. Wow. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier about how, you know, particularly like thinking about the mold going into your nose and then impacting the hypothalamus and pituitary. So what are some of the ways that you really see mold impacting hormones? Like, does it, does it show up a lot that people have lowered hormone function or is it like, can it make the estrogen go crazy? What's the deal? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. There's a lot of different ways that we see it. I would say the general trend is that it makes hormones bottom out. Not always, not for everybody, but, but that is sort of the general trend, you know, with that, that hypothalamic pituitary uh, adrenal axis or thyroid axis or gonadal axis, those really get disrupted. And so you tend to see um, suppressed levels of all of the stimulating hormones and then suppressed levels of the, the end result hormones. The one that we, we sometimes see uh, rather elevated is cortisol. Mm -hmm. Um, that you can get increases of the release of the the corticosteroid stimulating releasing hormone and that can give you increased uh, um, cortisol levels which certainly also goes along with that kind of anxiety ramped up being stuck in sympathetic state people can't calm down you know that 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 all kind of goes along with that I would say for sure um Definitely, you know, sex, sex hormones, we see a lot of, tos- low, lot of low testosterone for sure. Like across um, the board, women and men or more with women? Women and men. Yeah, very often. Mm-hmm. Um, and thyroid hormone generally depressed as well. Um, mm-hmm. And for women, there are also other really kind of deeper ramifications to think about as well. I mean, fertility can be affected for sure from, from men or women, um, repeat miscarriage that, that can happen as a result of mycotoxins. Mycotoxins also can cross the placenta and are found in breast milk. So this is incredibly important for anyone. And I've had clients like this who have been living in mold, dealing with it and want to conceive. 
Uh, and that's a very difficult conversation with them about why that's really not a good idea at that, at that point. Um, and so, can, so in terms of like, uh, if you have it, can, when you're, when you have, when you're pregnant, can your baby get the mold in that way? Or is it just via the breast milk? essentially once they- Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, certainly if we know that they cross the placenta, mm -hmm. then the question becomes, what kind of an effect can they have on the fetus? Yeah. I don't know that there's really data on that, to be to be honest. Mm -hmm. um, Probably not, because we're not studying yeah. this stuff enough yet, right? Yeah, you know, I'd imagine it's a situation most people try to avoid as closely as possible. And I'm sure lots of people have been unwittingly living in mold and had very healthy babies, right? So, yeah. um, I think if you if you know it and you can do something about it, it's a situation to try to avoid. And, and certainly somebody who's really mold sick, that's not a body that's ready to take on growing another human being right. at that point anyway. So, you know, you want to try to get on top of that ahead yeah. of time. Um, there's evidence as well, I would say other things your listeners might be interested in, endometriosis and chronic pelvic pain. Um, oh, those things can both be associated because they are uh, inflammatory right. um, conditions and endometriosis can be very tied to toxins. Um, right. so, so yeah, we do see a lot of that. Blood sugar elevations, that's another thing that I would say um, in terms of, of things we see very often and, and not necessarily just being depressed, that inflammation response that happens can block the ability to bring glucose into the cells. Mm. So therefore you get a lot of elevating blood sugar. That's another big one as a clinician that you see. It's like someone who exercises and eats a great diet. And every time you run blood sugar, their fasting insulin and fasting glucose are going up. And you're like, there's you're like, no way. Yeah. yeah, there's no way this person's living a pre-diabetic lifestyle. How is this how is this happening? You know? Yeah, interesting. So when you and, mentioned uh, the endometriosis connection, um, you know, a lot of times you think with endo that um, uh, I was like estrogen. <laughs> what is the word I'm looking for? Estrogen is usually higher. So, like, do you will you see that in cases with people with endometriosis that mold? <laughs> Is an issue. You certainly can. Yes. And again, I like, I don't want to make a blanket statement that, that hormones are always going to be low. Right. Um, you absolutely could still see a situation of estrogen dominance or something mm -hmm. like that. Okay. About fibroids or endo and is dealing with mold. So it's not, it's not always going to be across the board. Yeah. Well, yeah. It, you know, it's, just, it, I think it is really good for people to know, you know, that, that are getting their hormones tested and uh, practitioners for us to be able to look at that too. Like, why can't I explain that this person has lowered hormones, you know, because there's definitely been cases right. where I found that I'm like, I don't really get it, you know, based on all these things that are happening, they're showing up on the test, why their hormones are low. So, and then you have to step back as a clinician and think, okay, what else do they have that's potentially fitting this, this pattern, right? Because it's not like when you just see unexplainable low hormones, you think mold, right? Right, right. It's, it's generally, you see, a, a large burden of a whole bunch of unexplainable things mm -hmm. that particularly for, for those of us who are practitioners, don't respond the way they're supposed to, to all the interventions we use all the time that things respond to beautifully. Gotcha. Um, the supplements don't work. The dietary changes don't work. Sometimes people actually even have like opposite effects with the supplement. So if a supplement is supposed to lower something, you find it starts going up or, you know, it's supposed to be calming. It makes them anxious, right? You think things can be really flipped. And when you start seeing all of that together, particularly if through your case history, you can tie it to, it all started after I moved. Yeah. Right. Or yeah. it all started after I started a new job or my office place moved or something like that. Right. That that's it's pretty rare that you get those giant aha moments that someone makes it that easy for you that it's like I moved into my house eight years ago and everything went to, to crap, you know. Yeah. But it's usually not that obvious. Yeah. But if it is, that's where you really you you want to be thinking hold. Gotcha. So what was the testing that the doctor ended up doing on you? And then what are other tests that you recommend? Yeah. So testing people for mold is actually pretty complex, both testing the body and testing the house, because there's a lot of pitfalls with each of these methods. So, I mean, certainly, like I said, taking a great case history and, and doing your screening and all of that is a big part of it. Mm -hmm. If you're a practitioner looking at other labs and testing, there's nothing that actually will tell you it's mold for sure, mm -hmm. but you can see patterns in hormones, uh, you know, GI testing, gut testing, blood work. If you know somebody has uh, intractable candida that you've just been trying to get rid of for years and years and years mm -hmm. and you can't, okay, that's kind of a, a red flag. You want to think mm -hmm. about something like that. 
Um, organic acids testing, which is a form of urine testing that can be done, um, it can give you a lot of clues. It can show you some of the breakdown products in the urine of a few different type of molds, not all of the molds, but a few of them. And there are other markers on that test as well that can sort of form patterns that can make you think that there might be mold going on. Gotcha. Then there's a urinary mycotoxin test, which is actually checking your urine to see if you're excreting these, these poisons, these, these mold toxins. The thing that's so important to know about this test is that it's an excretion test. And so it can only pick up what you're able to excrete. Getting out, yeah. By definition, people who are, who are toxin sick generally are not detoxifying very well. So they can have a huge body burden of mycotoxins and, and not be um, excreting it. And I have tested people who are telling me about the visible mold on the walls in their bathroom and have every possible symptom you could think of. They are classic mold and their mycotoxin comes back with nothing on it mm. because they're so sick that right. they just can't, they can't excrete it. So, yeah. so that's important to know, right? If you're going to run this test, you may find nothing. Right. Is there um, um, something that you can do to kind of, you know, um, like something that you take beforehand to help the excretion for that moment or? One of the things that can be really helpful is sweating, particular sauna. Um, so if somebody has access to a sauna, we'll tell them try to do sauna every day for a week. Um, okay. Sauna at night, like get a really good sweat, go to sleep, get up in the morning, collect your first morning urine after a week of sauna. That can help. Gotcha. Um, depending on which lab you use, you can provoke with glutathione to try to get the, the mycotoxins excreting. Um, the lab that I use primarily, uh, you don't want to do that. It will confound the test and the test can't see the mycotoxins. So you have to know that if you're, if you're running this type of testing for sure. Right. Um, and then the other testing that can be done that, that my doctor did for me and that I'm doing with clients as well, which can be very telling is uh, blood testing where you're looking for a whole variety of different inflammatory and hormonal markers that mm -hmm. are probably nothing most people have ever heard of. Um, weird markers, TGF beta and C4A and MSH and MMP9. And, you know, it's like an alphabet soup of things that you have no idea what it is. But these are markers that have been shown by some of the, the leading minds in this field that elevate or drop in some very specific patterns when there is mold toxicity illness. And that can be the thing that tells you, okay, my urinary mycotox didn't tell me all that much. My organic acids test, it looks like it might be going on. I'm still not fully convinced. You run that blood panel and that's where you can really get the kind of ahas that, that you can really see the effects in the body. Okay. Um, and so that, is that something that like um, you would say most molds or doctors that are educated in molds know to run that kind of testing or is that like kind of few and far between in terms of finding people that understand? Well, yeah, I mean, I would say any practitioner who really is educated in, in, in this more holistic and, and even functional approach to finding and dealing with mold toxicity is absolutely going to know about all of the types of things that we've just talked about. Um, the medical community, and I always say, my dad's a doctor, I'm not in the business of trashing doctors, but the medical community, uh, this is not an accepted illness, this is not an accepted disease state, they don't know about this testing, uh, it's, it's, you're never going to get anywhere going down that path, basically. But if you're working with the right type of practitioner, yes, these are the types of tests that we're using for sure. Okay. And then, so what is the best way to figure out in terms of in your house, if your house is covered in mold? Yeah. Also pretty problematic, unfortunately, because you know, like I said, the, these things can be hidden behind walls, right? So if you're just doing, uh, there's a there's a form of, of do-it-yourself testing that's called the ERMI test, E-R-M-I, it's an acronym. You basically take a Swiffer and you collect dust around the house and you send it off to this lab. Well, that could work if the molds are in your house in a place where it's in the dust, but what if it's behind the walls, right? So so that, that may not work. Um, I can tell you that my house, my ERMI test came back negative. Um, and there was, you know, mold and it was everywhere. everywhere. <laughs> it was everywhere. Yeah. Um, there's also problems with air sampling. So testers that do only air sampling will tell you that's the gold standard way to look for mold in your house. But the problem is some of these molds and mycotoxins are much heavier than others. And so they won't be circulating in the air. They'll only be on the ground. 
So oh. air sampling is potentially going to miss some of those. Uh, one of the worst ones, stachybotrys, which is what people think of as black mold. Everyone's heard mm-hmm. of like toxic, toxic black mold. Very heavy. Doesn't show up in air sampling, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, so really, you know, you can start with some of these more less less invasive, less expensive testing, but I think ultimately the best bang for your buck is always to hire a very highly trained mold inspector who specifically works often with biotoxin illness clients. And that's important because there's a lot of people in the yellow pages who say that they do mold testing and mold remediation, but you really want somebody who understands biotoxin illness and who uses a real variety of sampling and testing methods. They should be using swabbing and air sampling and tape and spore trap and infrared cameras and looking behind your wall it's it's complex and it's not cheap you know but think about the amount of time and energy you're going to spend if you don't if you don't find the problem up front versus just diving in and having a really good home inspection so um, that's always my recommendation wow so i mean is that accessible in all like all of your clients in different places are they usually able to find a local person that can do that usually yes there there are a few or a a couple of of companies that work through large swaths of the country Mm -hmm. um, that have some people who can do that Uh, and even in you know Oklahoma and Kansas, you know, there are people who, who do this type of testing. Um, they may have to travel to you a little bit. That may make it a little more expensive, but, but yes, those folks are out there. Uh, and it's generally, I would say accessible. Gotcha. And then like in your case, you guys moved out and you had somebody come in. And so what is that? What do they do when they come in and clean up? Remediation, I mean, man, those people are warriors as far as I'm concerned because, uh, you know, it's a full hazmat zone. Yeah. So, so first of all, I think it's important, and you'll see this in any, any sort of resource that you look at, but it's important to say you don't ever want your inspector and your remediator to be the same person mm-hmm. because obviously they have a vested interest in finding more mold if you're going to pay them to remediate it, right? So you should that's a huge conflict. You don't want that. Um, but yeah, the remediators... It is full hazmat um, containment zones, negative air pressure to keep the the air from going into other parts of your house. You know, presuming, let's say it's just a bathroom. You have an inspection. They would check the whole house. They find it's all in the bathroom. Okay. So you're not going to have to tear your whole heart house apart, we're going to have to tear that bathroom apart pretty hardcore and they have to contain everything because otherwise you're just stirring up all those spores and mycotoxins that are going to go out through your house and make it worse. So um, there's, there's a lot of, of heavy equipment that goes behind all of that. Um, it's also always recommended, even if it is just a bathroom, that you, the mold sick person, get out of your house while this is being done. Because yeah, no matter how sense. much they contain it, the stuff's going to get stirred up and you're going to get worse. I have yet to see a case of somebody who uh, ignores that advice and does not get worse. Um, so you really, you really do want to get out. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's like, it's, it's like cancer, you know, clean margins. Like when they cut out a tumor, it's like that they're going to keep going and going and going until they find no more evidence, um, and remove all of the damaged materials. You can't wash it off. You can't bleach it off. You can't, uh, UV light it off. You have to remove the materials that have wood on them, get them, uh, that have mold on them, get them out of your house. Then there's asbestos, right? I mean, if people think about asbestos and we kind of understand how important that is. Yes. to be anywhere near that when it's being removed. Yeah, same, same, same exact thing. Same kind of containment that work that's done, absolutely. Then there's post-testing, right? Because they got to be sure they got it all um, before they start rebuilding and closing it all up again. So yeah, it's a, so process. It's a process. I mean, in how long did, do you have to be out of your house when they were redid it? We were out for nine months and no one can believe that we did it that fast. I mean, I was like a slave driver. I was here every day with the contractors, you know, keeping them moving as fast as we possibly could. Because I mean, the, re- the removal remediation process was two months, right? Okay. So the first two months that we were out, that was all done and the house had a clean bill of health. But now it was studs, right? So, so that it took seven months to rebuild the house. Basically. Wow. Yeah. So people have to be prepared. I mean, I, I'm glad that you focus a lot on that part of your story because I can imagine it, you know, if somebody's listening to this and they're thinking about getting checked out for mold, 
understanding that the process with your house is, you know, a huge component. To it's it. huge. And it's so scary. You know, I mean, it's by far the number one thing that clients want to talk about. It's like, okay, we've found mold and we know you have all of these health issues and we need to work on, on getting you better. And the number one thing they want to talk about is, you know, do I have to throw my childhood stuffed animals away? And what do I do with my photo albums? And do we really have to move out of the house? And obviously I'm going to support them through that in any way I can and give them good resources. But, you know, my job is to heal their body and I will connect them with the experts who are going to heal their house. But it is an overwhelming process that, you know, on the one hand, I wouldn't wish on anybody, but on the other hand, there are so many people out there who are dealing with this and could be in a whole new world in terms of their health if, if they got with the right practitioner and actually figured out what was going on. Right. Right. And I love that, you know, the, the, the simple part of moving out of the house. And I know that's not really simple, but, but it, it's such a big jump, you know, in your case, and hopefully for a lot of other people too, that you start to feel better because then you're motivated to continue on. Right. And you're like, yeah. And I think that is true for most people. Again, I don't think you can say across the board that that's going to happen for everybody. Um, and of course there are very varying degrees of severity of the talk, you know, the, the toxin illness, mm -hmm. but, but yes, there is usually some significant improvement once you get away from it. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you work with people, obviously one-on-one, -on -one. I know that your practice is pretty full. Um, can people get on like a wait list with you if they're interested or. Yeah. So I am still taking some new clients on. So I do have, do have some room in my practice. Um, okay. and, and that's just a balanced table.net. That's the easiest way to find out more about me and get in touch with me. But, um, you know, beyond working with me, which obviously not everybody can do. Um, I think, there are a couple of practitioners out there who have created training programs and have uh, trained practitioners who are doing the, the kind of work and testing that we've talked about. They maintain websites where you can certainly find um, practitioners near you. Uh, so one is Dr. Neil Nathan, who happens to be out here in California. And the other is a naturopathic doctor, Jill Krista, C-R-I-S-T-A. Um, both have websites, again, with listings of practitioners that they've trained uh, and who I think you'd be in pretty good hands with anyone who they've trained. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing those resources. And I'll put that in the notes for people too, both your website and theirs. Um, this has been an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge about this. And, you know, I, I just, I mean, like so many things in the functional world, right? It's, it's so new to people in general that these, um, things that they've a lot of people have been living with for a long time but there is something that they can really do about it and not have to go to doctors again and again that just don't know what's going on with you and like yeah. try all these different medications and you get you know no better you know there right, is right. there is hope and even though it is a long process that you can feel so much better and I mean that's absolutely and I feel right yeah and for so many people it's just such a relief to finally know like, yep. you know, I'm, I'm not crazy and it's not all in my head and I, you know, it's not just hysterical hormones or whatever. It really, there's something wrong and that no matter how big the, the journey is to get through it all for so many people, that's just, this is so huge to just have the relief of knowing that there really is a thing that's causing all of this for them. Yes. Yes. Well, thank you again for sharing your expertise. It was so amazing having you here today. Thank you, Christine. It was great to be here. All right, you guys, I will see you next time.